Hello and welcome. This is Let Me Explain You a Thing, a completely unpretentious podcast where I explain a thing that's been rattling around my head. Um, I don't have a lot of expectations for this, to be honest. Uh, Just really using Apple Podcasts as a medium for sending audio files to particular people who like to fall asleep to me explaining a thing. (laughs) No, No joke there. So I'm at home recording on uh, my desktop computer, and I think the audio quality should be permissible to Apple Podcast standards relative to recording on my phone in the car over Bluetooth, and this should be a lot better. I still have hope that uh, those three episodes I do have in the can uh, may be fixed up. Maybe re-recorded on some timescale, but for right now, we're doing this. So, I thought I'd start by talking a little bit about A Song of Ice and Fire. Maybe get into a few different topics. House of the Dragon just dropped, uh, first episode this past Sunday. Um, Could talk about uh, the nature of prophecy in the universe, which uh, House of the Dragon definitely propelled to uh, kind of new, new heights. Uh, thus far. In fact, yeah, let's do that. We could talk a little bit about uh, the Targaryen dynasty, such as it is, up until uh, the the start of the show. Um, So this will be a no-spoiler for House of the Dragon canon uh, podcast. So I think it's important to begin with some of the larger uh, underpinnings of this world. So we've we've got the Targaryens, which are a Valyrian house, they escaped Targa- uh, They escaped Valyria before the Doom wiped out that civilization. That was about 400 years before the start of the main storyline, and about two-ish hundred years before the start of House of the Dragon. So basically what happened, this character, um, Anar the Exile, left with his, his family, their household all their dragons and their whatever wealth they could carry, and they settled in Westeros on an island that they called Dragonstone. And interesting point, I don't know if it was renamed to Dragonstone or what that land was known as originally, or, you know, prior to the Targaryens settling there. Another interesting factoid, uh, there's other Valyrian houses in Westeros in the Narrow Sea, also uh, settled on islands uh, close to what would become the Crown Lands near King's Landing. And there's the Valarians, who are represented in the show House of the Dragon by Corlys Valarian, Rhaenys Targaryen, his wife, and their two children. Lenor and Lena, and the Valarians had kind of a glow-up moment when Corlys took control of the house, became lord. He, they had always been a seafaring house, but he really ratcheted up their trade to distant lands. Uh, he greatly improved the quality of their fleet, and 
they became incredibly wealthy in the space of about a generation, one of the great houses of Westeros. And the fact that the Polarians had for some generations been intermarrying uh, from time to time with the Targaryens, even before the Targaryen conquest, uh, probably sketched out some some Westerosi lords who, you know, maybe viewed them as a little bit foreign or perhaps simply just didn't like the uh, the you know power that was uh, being consolidated in these uh, in these Valyrian houses in the Narrow Sea. So that's always a possibility. Uh, that certainly motivates a lot of major events in A Song of Ice and Fire. It's all very you know naturalistic in that regard. Um, things sometimes happen for fairly boring, straightforward reasons. Like uh, this dude doesn't like the the uptick in trade that this other dude is getting. You know, sometimes uh, blood feuds and really nasty conflicts boil down to economics. So, always an element of George's storytelling that I think hits really well and doesn't feel, like, too operatic. Uh, It's just kind of like, yeah, that's that's happened in the real world. So, anyway. um, Yeah, so there are other Valyrian houses. I want to say... Now that I'm at a computer, I can actually look this up. Um, I think there might be only three. Yeah, so the other one is um, you got House Targaryen, House Valarian, and then House uh, Celtigar or Celtigar. Um, They're definitely, I mean, they, they have wealth. They're definitely less than the other Valyrian houses in Westeros. Um, They don't really come into the the story, I don't believe. Uh, Historical House Celtigar. Oh, interesting, yeah. So they claim dominion over Crackclaw Point, um, but the inhabitants do not acknowledge this claim. And this is, you know, back in, during the uh, Targaryen conquest under Aegon I. So... Oh, yeah, interesting. And the people of Crackclaw Point surrendered peacefully to Queen Visenya Targaryen during the conquest and were officially freed from pledging fealty to anyone but the Iron Throne. And the Celtigars occasionally send men there to collect taxes. If Lord Celtigar sends enough collectors, a few come back to him. Let's check the source on that. That's interesting. Oh, yeah, Feast for Crows, Chapter 20, Brienne 4. Wow, it sounds like a Bible verse when I put it like that. Um, yeah, this is Brienne takes a, a jaunt up to Crackclaw Point. People kind of rag on Feast for Crows because, for one thing, you know, like the first three books, Game of Thrones, Clash of Kings, Storm of Swords, really build up this, you know, conflict between the Starks and the Lannisters. And Feast for Crows, uh, you know, obviously there are some climactic events in Storm of Swords that really shift the balance of power. Um... And then there's kind of a weird lull uh, in Feast for Crows. There's not as much to do with the Starks. I think only the only Stark character that gets... Well, there are two. There's um, uh, Sansa and Arya. Both get chapters, but not too many, as I recall. Um, Jon is not really present in the story, except, you know, as a sort of third person. Um, like, he's seen by other point of views... I think in one chapter, Sam. And I can imagine, after waiting 
three more years than anticipated at that point. Like the first three books, George banged out two years apart. And then Feast for Crows came out five years after Storm of Swords. So I can imagine after waiting a little bit longer for a book, you know, you see John and then Sam walks away and gets on a ship. It's like, oh, shit, <laughs> this isn't happening, is it? He's, he's not going to be a character here. Because um, I think at that point, John, Danny, and Tyrion had kind of become fan favorites, or at least remaining fan favorites, and none of them are in Feast for Crows. And so people direct a lot of their ire at characters like Brienne, who's, you know, just wandering the Riverlands looking for Sansa and Arya, or actually mostly for Sansa. I don't think she has any expectation that Arya is still alive. Because, um, you know, when the Starks were... When, when Ned was beheaded at um, the Grey Sept of Baelor at the end of Game of Thrones, spoilers, um, she was... she just disappeared. You know, like, nobody's seen her. She's presumed dead, which in this universe is, you know, hey, fair. So, yeah, Brienne's just wandering the Riverlands looking for Sansa. Um, kind of runs into a lot of strange characters uh, like Nimble Dick Crab, real guy, and uh, encounters the uh, outlaw, now outlaw sellsword company that imprisoned her and Jamie in Harrenhal and cut off Jamie's hand. Real nasty crew. And what else? And then there's, like, new characters, new point-of-view characters introduced for the Iron, uh, Iron Islands and Dorne. And they kind of come out of nowhere. I think, you know, when retrospectives are written on the entire series or entire series as it exists, it will be very clear that this was sort of like a non-linear, very sort of messily told story on George's part. Um, and in some ways, that's really deeply interesting, um, and in other ways, maybe kind of frustrating. But back to the main topic. Um, so back like several layers, I guess. So Anar the Exile took his, his family based on a dream by his daughter Danis, who is later called Danis the Dreamer. Um, so prophecy makes a huge, uh, you know, is, is a huge part of Targaryen motivation. We know that a lot of Targaryens or characters with Targaryen ancestry have dragon dreams, have uh, 
strange dreams that appear prophetic or premonitory. Um, and, you know, Danny has a number of dreams that we see in her point of view of dragons and destruction and apocalyptic battles and so forth. There's one dream she has where she's riding on uh, Drogon, fighting an army armored in blue ice, I believe. And of course, in Song of Ice and Fire, color symbolism is just a gigantic part uh, of the story. And so is, you know, some of the material symbolism, um, iron, wood, uh, wood, ice, silk, uh, some of this stuff like appears, you know, is noted at crucial points and it's just a big part of the story and presenting like who certain characters are providing a lot of expository information. Um, someone wears silks, then they're not a very serious person. Uh, for example, that's just kind of a, a, a truism. Um, there's a lot of a lot of more significant ones as well. Anyway, um, so Daenerys and her dragon dreams. Um, uh, Aemon Targaryen, the maester at the Wall, he also has dragon dreams. Uh, his brothers, uh, Egg, who became Aegon the the Fifth, had dragon dreams. He actually. Uh, this is not ever related in the the show, but in the books. So you have these these light, fairly lighthearted Dunk and Egg stories. I'd say fairly because even though they have kind of a you know simple morality to them, they're short stories. All the conflicts are basically resolved by the end. Uh, they're still like a little grim in regards. Uh, you have one story that's about a, a father unable to process the the loss of his sons decades earlier in in a forgotten war, well, not forgotten war, really a war that still haunts everyone. Um, but it was decades ago, and then you have uh, you know a story that results in a man accidentally killing his brother or perhaps murdering him. I don't know which is worse, and. Uh, just a, a needless death and and dismemberment stuff like that. The the villains, Arian Brightflame, who's Dunks not Dunks Eggs' uh, older brother, is just a real piece of work. Uh, George writes great villains, as we know. Um, but yeah, anyway, so the Dunk and Egg stories, you wouldn't you wouldn't know it from this like kind of scrappy kid Aegon who grows into a king, um, and does some fairly progressive things, like tries to, uh, tries to eradicate the Targaryen, you know, practice of incest, and, uh, does a lot of progressive reforms for the small folk because of the years that he spent on the road with Dunk, who was, you know, no one from nowhere. Um, a lot of great reforms, uh, thanks to Aegon. Maybe a little too much too quickly, as the, the histories tell it, but, you know, who knows. He also, unfortunately, uh, a lot of his progressive work was kind of undone by his children. Like, uh, you know, his eldest son and heir renounced his claim to the throne so he could marry for love and ended up spurning his... Uh, his betrothal to uh, the daughter of a Lord Baratheon to make up for this. I think, if I'm remembering right, 
Aegon uh, betrothes somebody else, like a daughter, to Lord Baratheon's son. And then that Baratheon line results a couple generations later in Robert, Stannis, and Renly. So what's interesting is though the the Robert fought so bitterly against the Targaryens and Targaryen rule, uh, he had like a Targaryen grandmother, so is not really too too far removed from them. And besides that, uh, he also was you know to shore up some support. Uh, people made the claim that he is you know after uh, Rhaegar died. Uh, Viserys and Daenerys escaped and Aerys was killed that Robert is like effectively the the next of kin um kind of an interesting contradiction there because he just like fought to uh to you know fought against their legitimacy as rulers but in any case I guess whatever it takes to to shore up that that support get get the wheels back on the thing Anyway, um, yeah, so that's, you know, Egg was, like, he he died, like, 40 years before the start of the main series in a fiery inferno uh, that he started. He had some kind of, it's not explained really what happened, but he had some kind of premonition that he could hatch dragons again because, you know, spoilers, at some point, I won't say when, but at some point the Targaryen dragons all die out. And we know this from the main story, like, Danny's dragons are the first dragons to exist in the world, period, Targaryen or not, uh, since they died out in Westeros. It's been centuries. And basically, all the Targaryen dragons in Westeros, like, even at the time of uh, when House of the Dragon opens, even though it seems like it's a dragon-filled age, those are the only known dragons in the world. You know, the Doom of Valyria kind of wiped out all... Valyrian dragons, uh, as far as anyone knows. There are no uh, other humans in the world that have dragons under their power, uh, apart from the Targaryens. And this is, I, I think, doubling back to a previous point, this is an important thing to remember when we look at uh, houses that might have been a little skeeved by the Valarians getting so close with the Targaryens. Like, you, you literally had, at one time a Valarian woman marrying a Targaryen man. I'm not going to say names for spoiler reasons, but, uh, you know, that could result in Valarian men who also hatch dragons. Or, you know, like, a Valarian heir to the house who is a dragon rider. Um, you know, talk about consolidating power in just a couple of houses. So, and this is kind of another interesting thing. The Targaryen rule, like, people act like under a noble Targaryen king it would have been good, but, like, if that rule is assured by the nuclear capabilities of dragons, then maybe that's not great, especially when every other king seems to be pretty bad. Um, and, yeah, leading up to Viserys, as we know, like, kind of bad things on the horizon. Viserys maybe didn't handle it too well. Not a great king. The king before him, Jaehaerys, was arguably great. Did some bad things, definitely. Um, spread this doctrine of Targaryen exceptionalism. At this time, like, basically, up to Jaehaerys' reign, um, the Targaryen, like, uh, marriage practices 
were pretty unpopular in Westeros, uh, pretty unpopular with the Faith of the Seven. And even among the old gods, like, that's kind of, you know, like, Egret explains to Jon Snow at one point that, um, you know, incest is, is seriously, like, not just, you know, frowned upon doesn't go far enough. It's, it's an abomination as far as wildlings are concerned. So, you know, even in the remotest corners of Westeros, it's, it's not common or taken well. And the fact that Aegon also had two wives, you know, a, a plural marriage. And, you know, even Maegor the Cruel tried, I think he, he tried marrying, like, several women at once. Like, more of a plural marriage, I guess. And, um, you know, these, these uh, Maegor fought wars with the church, which at that time the faith had... Uh, military arms, the the faith militant, um, knights and commoners who followed the faith of the seven and, you know, were willing to willing to fight and die for it, and they fought major battles across Westeros between the crown and the faith. And so to kind of like stitch things up and get the faith to back the the Iron Throne after Magor, Magor had a pretty short, violent reign. Um, Jaehaerys became king as a young man and reigned for like 50 years but to stitch things up he began spreading a doctrine of exceptionalism so he kind of found some allies within the faith of the seven and um, some mouthpieces one might say and began spreading this idea um, at all tiers of of the faith like between wandering septons uh, talking to commoners and you know in, in some of the major houses of worship in major cities of Westeros, like the Starry Sept of Old Town, had Septons kind of uh, advocating for this idea of Targaryen exceptionalism, that they're just more like, they're closer to gods than men, they're not beholden to the same rules, and they can do the, you know, weird fucked up shit that they do, and it's actually okay that they're, they're kings, that they're in a position of rulership. Naturally, this had to be done, even with the Targaryens still having dragons, because Aegon assembled the, the Seven Kingdoms by force, right? So he, the fact that he was able to do that meant that he was able to rule them, essentially, um, to maintain his power. And then his son, Aenys, uh, did, and his successor, um, he was kind of a weak king, and then Magor the Cruel, <laughs> you know, not much has to be said there. Um, so, like, I think people were really running low on patience generally with the Targaryens and their dynasty, and were kind of like, oh, this is going to keep happening? Like, there's more of them? Um, even with the dragons, like, there was, they were reaching sort of a breaking point before it became, like, the new normal, so to speak. So, anyway, that was one of the bad things that Jaehaerys did. Um... He also, you know, like, air management. There was not a firm, even with primogeniture, uh, I believe it's agnatic primogeniture. There's agnatic and cognatic. Yeah, so agnatic primogeniture is male preference, basically. Um, well, I guess I guess it's not. What's cognatic primogeniture? 
Okay, I guess cognatic um, is inclusive of women, um, and agnatic primogeniture is strictly, you know, inheritance by males. And that was the law of the land in, in Westeros, but of course the Targaryens are a Valyrian house, and they want to, on the one hand, integrate and look normal, <laughs> look Westerosi, but on the other hand, like, kind of have their own takes on these things. And prior to Aegon the Conqueror, were not kings, they were, like, lords. Um, so kind of a whole different set of rules. Basically, uh, Aegon had two sons, Aenys and Magor. Aenys was the elder, so he became king. Pretty simple. Uh, and then when Aenys died, he had uh, he had children. Magor basically like snatched the crown, um, took the throne, and and had them killed basically. And so, yeah, um, that was obviously not ideal, and people probably didn't see that as the way things should work. But it was another generation where the typical rules of primogeniture were not applied. Um, so you have that, and then you got um, the next generation, uh, what was that, Jaehaerys takes over from his uncle, or great-uncle, Magor, I forget. Um, he's not, like, Magor has no direct descendants. Um, let's see if I can come up with that real quick. Family tree is such a fucked up nightmare of a mess. Um, okay, so Jaehaerys, yeah, was the, was actually a younger son of Aenys. Okay, that's how it works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, so I guess he's continuing the succession, but then after Jaehaerys, like, there's the whole big conflict, like, what happens? You have no living children, um... You know, he had, he had descendants. Okay, yeah, so he had, uh, I think, no no living children. Like, he had one, um, one who, like, ran away, um, and that's pretty much it. Really, was this a whole? I guess so. Anyway, um, yeah, and so he had basically a grandson through, or a granddaughter through his first son, and two sons through his second son. Um, so, you know, that's the whole opening conflict of House of the Dragon. Like, you know, they kind of uh, distill it to the eldest eldest heir or something, or eldest male heir, right? I think that's how they play it. It's really a little bit more nuanced than that, but we'll give them points. Um, anyway, so, yeah, the, the whole concept of primogeniture is pretty pretty hairy at this stage, um, and there's no guarantee that that's how things had to continue, which is why when everybody, you know, leading up to, like, House of the Dragon, all the, the maesters recounting these histories frame it like, oh, well, this was just the ironclad precedent. It's like, not really. Like, you only have a few generations prior, for one thing, and the rules are still being worked out. There's never been a Seven Kingdoms um, before. You know, we're, we're just looking at, like, all these different kingdoms that had their own principle, rules and principles of inheritance. Um, I guess not, like, super different, but anyway. Um, 
yeah, so where was I before I got onto this tangent? Um, yeah, I guess, so, like, the, the Targaryens had only settled in um, Westeros, like, a few generations before the Doom of Valyria, and, yeah, and then, like, a few generations longer, and you have Aegon and his sisters conquering Westeros. And it's given to us in the show that, in House of the Dragon, that there's this supposed uh, prophecy handed down from Aegon the Conqueror to each heir in turn um, over, you know, uh, this, you know, song of ice and fire, like this conflict that will go down for which the Targaryens are in a leading position to resist the, the armies of darkness and ice and that they must have the Iron Throne, must have dominion over Westeros, and that this is kind of the the sacred duty and responsibility of Targaryen kings to kind of, you know, keep things rolling and, and whatnot. And if that was the case at any point in history, which I'm willing to believe, and I'm also willing to believe that George R. R. Martin, you know, planted this seed that, you know, he gave it to the, the showrunners or the screenwriters or whatever, um, you know... Okay, one other thing, just quick sidebar. I think it is really interesting that we have this because it totally undermines the end of Game of Thrones, and I'm glad that they are doing that rather than trying to make it make sense. They're basically just starting a new canon um, to to a degree. Like, uh, basically, the end of the Game of Thrones show, you have basically just the Starks fighting against the the White Walk, the White Walkers. Um, the Starks and their associates fighting the White Walkers and defeating them. Like, Arya is given the the dagger by Bran and uses it to kill the Night King, which, chain reaction, kills all the rest of the the White Walkers and their whites. Um, so it's really just a Stark conflict, and I think that's that's kind of fair because like the Starks are very closely aligned with the Night's Watch and that's kind of the Night's Watch charter. Um, but like John and Danny, the two remaining characters in the story to that point with any Targaryen ancestry are just like kind of using their dragons and eh, like kind of fighting, but not really accomplishing anything. Um, I guess you could say it was John who united the North and, and brought the Night's Watch you know, under his wing and brought Danny to the fold and stuff like that. But like Danny losing the dragon actually was a detriment <laughs> to them um, and to their cause. So I don't know, like they just, and then the, the conflict after that is over the iron throne after it really kind of matters. Like you would think that they would try to unite Westeros first and then, you know, bring everybody together for this big showdown with the, the White Walkers, but that's not how things went, and I think that was incorrect, and everybody knows it. Um, so anyway, now you know they're trying to overwrite that canon a little bit um, and say no, that was that was what she should have been doing, and maybe the message got garbled somewhere along the line. I think that definitely did happen, um, for what it's worth. Like you have, uh, you have the how to how to say it like. You have some, like, difficulties with success. So this is why I was talking about succession, I guess. But, like, you have some challenges that uh, result in the message being lost, if that was the case. If that was the plan from Aegon, and he was hoping to, in a fairly simple 
manner, like pass this message down father to son through the generations until they were, you know, powerful enough to confront the White Walkers or whatever he expected that to happen to, to repel them if they invaded. However, he saw that going down in the end. Um, you know, obviously, after he died, his son became king and then was usurped by his other son. And who knows if maybe the message... I mean, so we're told that the message made it to Viserys somehow. That is a little perplexing because did... You know, for one thing, who ends up becoming king is not who, you know, a ruler expects to have as their heir. Um, So for another thing, like, Viserys didn't tell Rhaenyra until after the death of Emma Arryn and, uh, and their child. So he was really kind of gambling on losing that information. And I wonder if this happened at other points in, in the timeline where, you know, somebody becomes king and their parent, you know, their, their father dies prematurely or something and wasn't able to pass on that information. Uh, going back to Aegon Targaryen the fifth. Um, Aegon the Unlikely, Egg, if you prefer, he was called the Unlikely because he was the fourth son of a fourth son. And it seems very likely that, you know, like Makar Targaryen, his father became king after one of his brothers, I believe. Um, so, like, Daron Targaryen mm, probably didn't... Nah, maybe could have told Makar. Um, well, no, he wouldn't have. Oh, I guess his older brother would have told Makar. Okay, so that's fine, I guess. Uh, I guess Makar could have told Egg. Um, Egg died, you know, unexpectedly. Uh, who knows if he told Jaehaerys, uh, II, his his son. Um, and, you know, if Aerys knew, he... Aerys Targaryen knew, he probably did not tell Rhaegar. Maybe... So what it's possible... What it sounds like is that Rhaegar rediscovered the secret somehow, and that's why he kind of has this uh, light switch moment where he's like, hmm, I should get good at fighting. (laughs) Um, He goes from bookish to, like, you know, trying to to make his way as a knight, and so it's possible that he rediscovers the secret, um, and maybe his kidnapping of, uh, uh, what's her face? Um, Lyanna Stark is related to that project. Maybe he viewed the Starks as like an important ally in this. Um, again, going back to the Starks' connections to Winter and the Night's Watch and probably the others. So, yeah, I think that's maybe fair to assume. Um, but in any case, Rhaegar, uh, Rhaegar rediscovered it, so it was lost at some point. And there are a lot of points along the the Targaryen dynasty where that could have happened. Um, it's just kind of surprising that it made it from Aegon to Viserys the first, honestly, um, with all that uh, Sturm and Drang uh, in mind from the first hundred years of Targaryen rule. Um, first fifty years, really, shit. Um, in any case, I think I'm going to wrap it up there. Uh, but we've we've talked a little bit about the uh, possible, you know end times prophecy that the Targaryens have touched on some uh, Targaryen dynasty uh, deets touched on um, hot D so anyway gonna wrap it up now that's that's a 
Yeah, I'm looking at my, my timer here. That seems to be a good point to stop. All right, so thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.